Great. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Um, hello to our online community as well. Glad that you're with us today. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and this is my son, Owen. And uh, and Owen is getting baptized this morning. And uh, so this is exciting. Yeah. But enough from me. We want to hear from Owen. Hello, church family. Uh, my name is Owen, and this is my testimony. I've always grown up in a loving Christian family since I was a baby. At a very young age, I gave my life in dedication to God. I think I was about three years old, and I don't personally remember it. Since I was a kid, I've always been a part of Seven Oaks Alliance Church. In children's ministry, all the way up to high school youth, and now working uh, in children's ministry as a leader. However, even growing up a Christian, I still left God in the background and rarely spoke with him on my own. In my early teens, I went to the Christian Camp Kakwa. This experience was really important for me because whenever I was there, I felt the Lord in my life and around the campsite. At camp, when I was 13, I recommitted my life to God. Regardless of these events, I still didn't read the Bible and grow with God. In the last 10 months, however, I've grown in my faith while reading and learning more about God. Zach, Jesse, and Jarrett from High School Youth have all helped me while I grow in my faith in this past year. I also want to thank my dad for always being there for me in my faith and helping me learn more about you, God. On the 3rd of March, on Friday, I was at the Soul Care Worship Night. I felt the Lord's presence in the room while we were worshiping. After the worship, we started praying for people's physical injuries. As I closed my eyes, I saw an image of gold mist coming out of the church's family's hands and into the people who needed healing. Looking back on this event, I believe the mist was the, gold, was the Holy Spirit, and he was coming to heal uh, the people who needed healing. Next, I saw a tsunami of pink water come bursting through the church doors, which I believe was the love of God. My mom shared this verse with me, Joel 2nd, verse 28 to 39, in which it said, young men will see visions and I will pour my spirit out in those days, which I thought was really cool, important, and meaningful to what I had just experienced. These visions I can't fully explain. All I know is the Lord spoke to me that night and I've been changed ever since that day. As I enter this next chapter of my life, I'm making sure to make decisions with God in mind. That is why I've made the choice to go back to Kakawa as a counselor in training in a few weeks to help more people learn about the love of God. I'm really excited to get baptized today before I go. Thank you. Um, so, Owen, there's a, there's a verse in Romans 10 that says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm going to ask you those two questions. Do you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? I do. And do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Yes, I do. Awesome. 
On account of you answer those questions and on account of your testimony and what I know to be true in your life, it's my deep privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everyone, again. Great to see all of you. It's so wonderful to worship together as a people of God, and I'm getting a signal. What am I doing? I'm dismissing children. Yes, I am. That's exactly what I was about to do. Uh, children, if you would like to leave for Sunday school, we love you. Have a great time. Follow Pastor Renee. She's back there. Or follow Brenda. She's back there. And we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. All right. I think that was actually Matthew's job. Supposed to be your job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> but he didn't put ice cubes in there like he threatened to do um, before I got here. So, uh, so thank you, Matthew. You are loved. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. And uh, we have been in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, uh, if you're um, just visiting us or you're new to the church family, we've been in Mark since uh, the beginning of January, and we've been kind of walking through the Gospel. We've stopped a couple of times to do some different things on Sundays, but we've been working our way through the Gospel that tells the story of Jesus Christ as, a, as recounted by Mark, which, as I said to you, is actually uh, believed to be the words, sayings, and sermons of the Apostle Peter recorded and written down by Mark. Uh, inspired by the Spirit. And so uh, what we've done is uh, Mark's gospel starts without the infancy narratives. It starts straight away um, with Jesus' baptism. And then what he does is he leaves uh, the Jordan River uh, down where he's baptized, and he goes up to Galilee. And we've watched for chapter after chapter of the Galilean ministry of Jesus, where he heals people, and he sets people free from demons, and he preaches in synagogues, and he calms the storm, and he calls the disciples, and all those incredible stories. He is both declaring the kingdom, and he's implementing the kingdom, or signs of the kingdom, at least. And after that, um, we got to the point in the middle of the gospel where uh, Jesus and the disciples are way up north, about as far in, uh, north as you can be and still be in Israel, in Caesarea Philippi, which is at the uh, base of Mount Hermon. And it's there that we get this incredible messianic declaration of Peter when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And he says, well, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And it's the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. And from that point on, then, Jesus is on his journey south uh, to both the city of Jerusalem and his destiny. And um, at various points, he stops at villages and so on, and we see the transfiguration and various other miracles and different stories. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, the story where Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler, and then last Sunday, uh, we had that kind of power discussion between James and John who wanted to sit at the right and the left of Jesus. They were looking for power and position, and Jesus gave them an alternative vision of kingdom. And so that's where we ended up. That was at the, uh, in chapter 10. Uh, today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to actually be in chapter 12, purposefully jumping over chapter 11. And the reason is, if you know the Gospel of Mark, you'll know that chapter 11 has the triumphal entry. It has what we call the cleansing of the temple. And I do give um, uh, kind of quotes around that, the cleansing of the temple and the fig tree incident. Those three things all make up together Uh, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So we looked at chapter 11 on Palm Sunday in April, and so that's why I'm not revisiting it. We're just going to go into 12. But I'm going to do a really quick recap of chapter 11. And the reason I'm doing that is because I preached it in a little bit of a different, untypical way. Um, And I think it's really, really important because it actually feeds into how we understand 
uh, 12 and 13, or at least they, they, they fit with that kind of same theme. Uh, so if, um, if you weren't here on Palm Sunday, and if what I say is a little confusing to you, I encourage you to go back to our website, listen to that sermon. It'll kind of unpack and help you understand that a little bit. Uh, but this is what the typical, typical way of understanding chapter 11 goes, something like this. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people are really happy about it. He goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple uh, of the money changers because they were in there buying and selling things in the temple, and they shouldn't have been, and Jesus is not happy about it. And so they've, they've turned this place of prayer into a den of robbers, and Jesus is just mad, right? And we call it the cleansing of the temple, and then you have the fig tree incident. Instead, the way I sort of presented it to you, I think a better reading of that is that three things. Number one, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Yes, he did, uh, on the, in the triumphal entry. But the best angle at which we can understand that, or at least understand the thought of the people of the time, is to, to read it against the backdrop of what Jews celebrate at the Feast of Dedication, or what they call Hanukkah, where they're celebrating the moment that Judas Maccabeus, back in 175 B.C., uh, rode into Jerusalem, just like that, to overthrow the Greeks who were oppressing the Jewish people. And, and so they celebrate that, and what he did was he rededicated the temple, hence the Feast of Dedication, rededicated the temple. And uh, people, when he rode in, waved palm branches. And there's actually coins that are minted with palm branches on them. Palm branches became a nationalistic symbol of Israelite overthrow of pagan nations. And so uh, when Jesus rides in, he rides in on a donkey and not a war horse, purposefully, to fulfill prophecy from Zechariah, but also to make the point that he was not coming in to drive out the Romans in some kind of armed rebellion, but he was actually resisting their hopes that the Davidic king was going to come and fight. However, they waved palm branches anyway, and as I said, that was loaded with nationalistic sentiment. And this was not just an innocuous of waving the nearest leaves they could find, but it was actually a very specific demonstration with very specific expectations on behalf of the crowd. And that's really important to understand. And then secondly, I, I quoted cleansing of the temple because I don't think that's a good way to describe it at all. I don't think it's actually a cleansing of the temple um, uh, in the slightest uh, because Jesus wasn't coming to cleanse everything and to clean up everybody's act and to purify the temple. He didn't do any of that. He didn't reform the temple. He went in and he threw over some tables and walked out. That's all he did. It's not a cleansing. He actually got in the way of worship. He actually obstructed worship. And it's true that there were money changes and they were doing bad things. And that's all true. That's all true. But he disrupted worship. He didn't purify it. It, rather than a cleansing, I argued on, on, in April that it was a prophetic action that spoke of how God was rejecting Israelite worship in the manner in which it was being uh, delivered, paving the way for the temple's destruction, which, by the way, happened in AD 70 when the Romans laid siege under, uh, under Titus, the general who became the emperor, uh, and, and the temple was destroyed and, and, and Jerusalem fell and it's never been rebuilt. And so, den of robbers is actually a really unfortunate translation, and most of our English translations say den of robbers. It's not a good translation. It'd be way better to say den of brigands or den of insurrectionists. The temple has become like a brigand's cave, a place where we plot violent overthrow and rebellion, just like Judas Maccabeus did back in 175 
BC. Jesus was saying, enough is enough. This is not God's way. I'm not here to lead a rebellion, and nor should you be. The temple is going to fall because of your obstinate rebellion. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised. But this temple is, is actually under the judgment of God, and it will be destroyed. And we're going to see in chapter 13 that he says that as well, when, uh, and we'll get there next week. Um, as you have failed to recognize the day of the visitation of your God. And then thirdly, uh, we talked about the cursing of the fig tree, which actually sandwiches around the temple incident. It's like a parenthesis or, or brackets around the temple incident. And, and uh, the fig tree often symbolized Israel. So when Jesus approaches the fig tree, it's like God approaching Israel, and God finds that Israel is fruitless. Just like Jesus finds that the fig tree is fruitless. And so what happens is Jesus then pronounces a curse on the fig tree. God pronounces a curse on Israel. And that since it's sandwiched around the, 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 the temple incident, I think it better helps us understand that, that acted parable of destruction rather than a cleansing of the temple. Because if we don't understand the fig tree that way, then Jesus is just being petulant, right? He's hungry. He goes to a tree to get some food. It doesn't have any food, so he's mad, so he just curses it because he's all powerful. Like, it's just a petulant act. I don't think we can understand the fig tree that way. We shouldn't understand it that way. So um, if that's all a bit confusing, you think, oh, I've never heard that. Like I said, go back to the, the other sermon, and it'll help you understand a bit. But, but I really, really, really needed to recap that for you because now when we go into chapter 12, it's going to help us understand chapter 12 more, or chapter 12 is going to help us kind of read back into chapter 11. So uh, chapter 12 is the continuing part of the gospel's progression where Jesus continues to identify how the people of Israel, and particularly the leadership of Israel, have categorically failed in their mission, their Abrahamic mission, to be a blessing to all the nations, and rather become something that represents resistance to the visitation of their God. And, uh, and then chapter 13 kind of builds on that as well. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open to chapter 12, do so. Uh, it'll be behind me on the screen as well. And we're just going to read the first 12 verses. This is a parable of Jesus. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. He dug a, uh, a, sorry, he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Remember these details. Builds a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and this one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. But he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. When they realized that, he had told this parable against them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd 
So they left him and went away. God's word to us today. So this parable for first century readers, the people it was first delivered to, needed no explanation. They got it. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Other parables, not so much. Sometimes the parables are delivered, and the disciples particularly receive them as kind of like riddles. They didn't really understand them. Uh, It required Jesus taking them aside and explaining the the parable to them, which sometimes he did. But this one was, was plain as day. It was clear. They wouldn't uh, it was loud and clear they wouldn't, they wouldn't miss the point that Jesus was making. The parable fits the social situation of the day. This was a normal kind of thing. You found this kind of thing happening. There was a wealthy landowner uh, who you know, owned this plot of land. Uh, he didn't live there. You know, he went away and stuff, so he cultivated it, and he created this vineyard. And then he would hire tenant farmers who would come in and have a place to live and would cultivate the, the, the vineyard or the farm for him. And then, you know, at at harvest time, he would come and say, okay, I need some of the produce of my land. And essentially, it was like them paying rent, right? So this was a normal social situation, a pretty typical of first century. However, at first reading, we might think Jesus is just making up a hypothetical situation to make a point. And to a certain degree, he was. But if we dig a little bit deeper, and if we go into the Old Testament, we realize Jesus is actually picking up on something very, very specific. And because he's doing that, the message is loud and clear. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2 says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines He built a watchtower. Remember I said, listen for the details of Mark 12. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. It's just like Mark 12. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. There you have it. Jesus wasn't just making up some hypothetical situation to make a point. He was drawing on an ancient prophecy from hundreds of years before. He was using Isaiah 5. And if you, if you know Isaiah, you may know that that section of Isaiah is actually, the context of it is judgment. And they would have known that. This is a, this, the context of this was judgment. And so we have a vineyard. It was planted by someone. We have a watchtower. We have a pit dug for a wine press. It's the same as the wine vat in Mark 12. Essentially what it is, it's a pit that was dug in the ground and it would collect the juice when the grapes were, were pressed. So same, same kind of thing. Jesus is using Isaiah 5. And since it's a parable, we know that parables are told to represent something. They're meant to be uh, short, pithy, punchy stories that kind of make a point and stop people in their tracks kind of thing. So how should we understand the parable? Well, we know that a vine, as well as a fig tree, is often a way of speaking about Israel. It was often a metaphor. Psalm 80, 8 to 9, you bought a vine out of Egypt. You bought a vine out of Egypt. You bought Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. You drove out the nations and planted it. You planted it in Canaan. You cleared the ground for it. And you t- it took deep root and filled the land. Israel is often described as a vine. Israel is the vine lovingly planted by God, bringing them out of Egypt, planting them in this wonderful land, this vineyard called Canaan. 
essentially building a wall around it. He offered them protection and security and calling her to be fruitful, building a wine vat. And God left his vine and left his vineyard in the hands of some tenant farmers. Who are the tenant farmers? The priests and the kings and the leaders of Israel. He left the country and left it in their charge and under their care. And at various times, God would send his servants to go and collect the produce of the vineyard. What does that mean? It's a reference to the prophets of old. They're often called the servants of God. So time and again, what would happen is Israel would go, and this, this is, by the way, this is over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. What would happen is Israel would get off course, they would start sinning, they would start getting into idolatry, they'd do this and they'd break the law and break the covenants, all this kind of stuff. And God would send prophets to speak to them, essentially to, to wave a flag, like to put a signpost and say, guys, 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 remember, remember the covenant, remember the laws, come back to God, come back to fidelity to Yahweh. And he would send prophet after prophet after prophet. Why? Because God is merciful. He didn't want to judge them. He wanted them to come back. People say that God is angry and vindictive in the Old Testament. He's not. He's incredibly patient. For hundreds of years, when they did unspeakable things, he still longed for them to come back into the Father's embrace. And so he sent prophet after prophet. And do you know what happened to most of the prophets? They got beaten and insulted, and some of them got killed. It's, it's the parable. And so um, he was beckoning them, and time and again they abused the prophets. So finally he sends a son. Surely they'll listen to my son. But the, see, they see the son coming in the parable. Maybe they think the landlord is dead, and they think, well, he is, he's got the inheritance. If we kill him, we'll, we'll gain the inheritance, maybe. Um, Israel had to continue, has continued to resist its calling and refuses to respond to the prophets. And now this current generation at, time of the, at the time of Jesus refuses to listen to the landlord's own son. And then the parable ends with a rhetorical question. What will the owner of the vineyard do then? He will bring judgment to bear on the wicked tenants. See why I explain chapter 11 the way I explain it? He'll bring judgment on the wicked tenants and give his vineyard away to others. What will God do to the current generation who continue in the line of mistreating prophets by killing his son? By rejecting the only means through which they're going to find lasting fruitfulness in their life, the only means through which they're going to find access back to God, if they actually kill that son, what is God going to do? Well, he's going to bring judgment because enough is enough. And the vineyard's going to be offered to others. Now, the first century uh, churches that received this gospel from Mark uh, 2,000 years ago would have understood that to mean the Gentile inclusion in the church. That's what they would have understood, I'm, I'm sure of it. As the people of Israel largely rejected their Messiah, so the Gentiles began to get grafted into the vine, and we read about that in Romans 9 to 11 grafted into the vine. So the Gentiles now come to represent the people of God along with the Jews that did respond to Jesus into this new thing that God was creating, his church. The early church was represented by Jews and Gentiles together. You can read about it through the book of Acts. Now it wasn't about being ethnically Jewish to be called the people of God anymore. It wasn't about that. It didn't matter who your mom was and your dad was. It didn't matter about your genealogy anymore. What mattered was what you did with Jesus. 
And so the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, God-fearers and, and everyone, pagans getting converted, all of, all of that wonderful uh, stuff. So um, the whole book of Acts deals with that Gentile mission to the church, where churches were set up all over the known world, under, under the disciples and under Paul particularly, as people responded to the preaching of the gospel and became followers of Jesus. This is the vineyard being given over to others. And then he ends by quoting Psalm 118. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that you guys rejected has become the chief cornerstone or the capstone. The, the cornerstone or capstone, what that is, it's the most important stone of a building. It's like the corner of a foundation upon which everything else is built, or it's the most important uh, part of, the, of, the, of a, an arch that keeps everything kind of up. It's the most important stone. That, that, cap, that stone that you guys rejected and said, he's not good enough for our building, thanks very much, for our temple, for our way of understanding what it means to be God's people, Israel. We're going to reject him. Well, actually, that stone that you're rejecting is going to become the most important stone of this brand new building that I'm going to build called the Church of Jesus Christ, and it's going to be built on him. He's the capstone. After Jesus delivers uh, the parable, those who were listening, the Israelite leaders, knew that he'd spoken it against them. They had every understanding of that parable. They got that Jesus was saying, this ancient prophecy of the vineyard from Isaiah 5, it's being fulfilled right now, and it's you, they got it. And so, um, instead of humbling themselves and being cut to the heart and realizing they'd missed the calling of Israel, instead of doing that, and this is the tragic part of this parable, instead of doing that, or this, sorry, not the parable, but the result of the parable, the tragic part is that instead of responding in that way, um, they responded by their orientation towards, let's have him arrested, and by extension, let's have him killed. And so it seals Jesus' fate. Uh, this is another part of Mark's gospel that takes us on this journey uh, to Jesus' destiny in Jerusalem. The judgment suggested uh, in the parable fits with what I described, I think, in chapter 11, and the cursing of the fruitless fig tree and the, the temple incident being understood as a acted out parable of destruction rather than a cleansing and reforming kind of action. And chapter 13, as I said, is going to lead us further on that journey as they actually talk about the destruction of the temple when the disciples say, hey, Jesus, look at this temple. Isn't it cool? And he says, actually, not one stone's going to even be standing on top of the other. It all fits. The gospel atmosphere is getting more and more dark and ominous. Dark clouds are forming over Jerusalem as Jesus and the disciples make their uh, way there. You can feel it. The clouds are gathering. The people are colluding and plotting. Humanity is being shown to be at its worst. Demons are screeching in delight as they feed on human brokenness and sinfulness. You're going to get that heaviness as you read towards the end of Mark. Although we've been reading about this growing darkness and Jesus' stark warnings, and though we've been talking about prophetic words of coming judgment and destruction and all of these things, there is also, of course, the, the parallel and connected pathway of God's sovereignty. There is this beautiful crimson ribbon that kind of works its way through uh, the gospel uh, narrative. 
All of these things are happening and really did happen 2,000 years ago, but instead of God's, uh, but, but, but the thread rather of God's purposes are weaving their way through it, the coming death of Jesus is not just Jesus being victimized, but it's actually a shocking and surprising part of God's strategy to right the wrongs of all history. The vineyard can only be given over to others. The vineyard can only be offered to all who bow their knee knee to Jesus if Jesus will obediently give his life in the way that he's being asked to in this most uh, incredible of injustices and this immense suffering. Today, we heard the testimony of Owen about his life and his journey with Jesus. And so Owen's salvation and my salvation and your salvation And the salvation of everybody throughout history is only possible because of Jesus' obedience. Hallelujah. Yeah, absolutely. The story of the gospel is so rich and so profound, yet so simple. It is really, really simple in its message, but it's also profound and deep in its nuance. And and you can never really mine it for all of it. There's always something new you find in the gospel. It's been said before that um, this was talking about the gospel of John, but I think you could stretch it to any gospel. Um, The gospel is both uh, deep enough for an elephant to swim in, and it's shallow enough for a toddler to wade in. the, The message is easy to understand. It's not hard, but it's profound and deep and nuanced and wonderful also. And so I would like to close out today by suggesting two things out of our passage today. If you have never, ever given your life over to Jesus before, um, if you're here in the room, if you're online, and you've never given your life over to Jesus before, I'd like you to hear really, really loud and clear that that offer of the vineyard to others is offered to you as well. It was for everyone, for everyone who would respond. The death of Jesus and his resurrection paves the way for individuals to respond to God's most valuable of gifts, eternal life. God wants to spare you getting caught up in the judgment that will sweep all of humanity stained by sin. And give you instead the gift of salvation means you get grafted into the vine. You get adopted into God's family. You become his child. You're granted forgiveness and healing and hope. And you get salvation and eternal life and access to heaven and all these wonderful things that are part of Christian hope. The alternative, friends, is very, very grim. And so Jesus Christ is the only hope for this broken and weary world. So if that's you, I want to just invite you why you still have breath and time to respond, to do that. And if you need some help to do that, come and find me or one of our pastors or one of the team that are up here or find someone you came with or if you're at home, somebody you know who's a believer. Find somebody to help you unpack what, that, what does it mean for me to, to actually come to Jesus and what do I do? Um, and it's not complicated, but it's wonderful and it's great to do it with somebody else. And the second thing I want to say, if you do know Jesus and you know his salvation, let me encourage you to reflect afresh on that wonderful truth. And let me encourage you to tell your story. Just like Owen shared his testimony today, every one of you have a story. And so let me encourage you, if you've not been baptized, to to be baptized, but to share your story somewhere to someone. Because that vineyard is offered to the world and there's a lot of people that have never heard that good news before. 
and they won't always come into a room like this and listen to a preacher like me, but they'll listen to somebody's story. And so share your story. Amen.